What makes the prophet Elijah such a big deal? He's one of a select group of prophets who appears to Joseph Smith in the Kirtland Temple. Number two, he's one of two prophets to appear on the Mount of Transfiguration before Jesus. And he's also the only prophet to have his own spirit named after him, the spirit of Elijah. So why is Elijah so important? We'll discuss this in today's lesson, number 28, After the Fire, A Still, Small Voice. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. We're in lesson number 28. The scriptures for this week are 1 Kings chapters 17 through 19, although I will hopefully cover a couple of chapters on either end of that. And we will explore the question, why was Elijah the one to appear in the temple to Joseph Smith? Why did Elijah, why did God need, why did Jesus Christ during his mortal ministry need to have Elijah appear to him on the Mount of Transfiguration instead of some other prophet? And why does Elijah get his own spirit named after him? So in other words, why is Elijah so prominent in the Old Testament? And uh, we'll get into that question. First of all, we're going to rejoin the book of Kings. Now, as you recall, as we talked last time, and uh, again, if you have any questions regarding previous lessons or this lesson, lessons coming up, Email the show, gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Uh, so as we as we left the study of the book of Kings last time, we were talking about the first king, Jeroboam. And the kingdom had just divided, and Jeroboam and Rehoboam had warred um, uh, between each other, and the kingdom of Israel in the north became wicked, and Jeroboam had instituted idol worship. Now, Uh, At least Jeroboam hadn't encouraged the children of Israel to worship other gods besides Yahweh. What what he had done was institute this golden calf worship, but these calves were meant to represent the God of Israel. Well, uh, there's a certain phrase that gets repeated as each king in the book of Kings, as each king of the northern kingdom takes the throne. It says, and he did worse than all who were before him. This, this is repeated a number of times. And there's a certain king, when, when they say it of Ahab, the king of northern Israel, and they say Ahab, was, and he, Ahab followed iniquity more than any that had come before him. They, and then that phrase is never repeated. And so Elijah comes onto the scene during the reign of Ahab, whom we can who we can assume is the worst king from God's perspective to ever reign the northern kingdom of Israel. And now at this point what I'm going to do is back up a, a second and kind of what we've done most of the time in most of our lessons is we have been getting a real close view of each each event in the lives of the prophets or the kings and we study what it would it have what it would have felt like to be that person. But what I want to do now is get a, a view from 30,000 feet of what the entire book of Kings is for. And um, first of all, 
first and second kings are the way they're they're presented to us in our Bible, but that is not an ancient designation. These these books are actually one combined narrative called Kings, and they're meant to be a continuation of the book of Samuel, which is the it's if you were to give a title, put this in a novel or a historical book and call it by a title, you would call it the nation of Israel and what it means. And we discussed a couple of weeks ago, we discussed the Davidic covenant when we, when we talked about Solomon. And this is a promise that was made to David saying, the kingdom shall never depart from thy house and the whole world will be saved. The nation of Israel will be saved. They'll all be blessed one will arise in your line. So the the belief in the Messiah was already present in both Israel, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And they, what they believed was that this messianic king was going to come from the line of David and unify all of Israel, chase out all of the enemies, put an end to all of the idol worship, and, and finally uh, fulfill the admonition of Moses to cleanse the land of all the all the idolaters that lived around and then earn and bring to pass all of the promises that had been given to Abraham. So this is the context. This is what people understood by the Davidic covenant and by uh, this is this is where they saw themselves in history is this is our destiny. Israelites would have seen this as their destiny is if if we can be loyal to God, then, and and I guess I should say that this is a this is a perspective that came after the fact, but within just a few generations, a couple of generations of this time period, was this is what we with this is what we expected to happen was that David would give birth within a few generations to a this messianic king who would have power, like unto the power of of Solomon, only he would be more righteous. So that, then the book of Kings sort of judges every king. You can, you can tell, it's almost like a, uh, a Mormon-like commentary, and thus we see that this king was righteous or not righteous, and at the beginning of every king's reign, he gives a little spoiler alert that says, oh, by the way, this king was the worst of all. This king was the worst of all. So, he judges, the author of the book of Kings judges each king by how righteous they were, how suited they were to this purpose, how, how much closer they brought the nation of Israel to this destiny that every Israelite in later years would come to see for the nation of Israel. And it was prophesied that Israel, first of all, they had these promises from, from Abraham, and we'll get back to the word promises later, but they had these promises from Abraham that had never been fulfilled, and it seemed like it had been promised to David that that would happen very soon. And so the book of Kings is the story of how Israel had this great potential, and they were almost on the cusp, they were reaching out for it, of having this wonderful king who would unite them, and they would have the Shekinah in the temple, and they would have all the blessings that they'd ever been promised, and then how they threw it all away, generation after generation, king after king, until finally... There was no other choice for God to make but to send Israel and Judah into exile. So that this is the story of the of the first and second books of Book of Kings. Now we are at sort of a turning point in this story. And 
Don't worry, I'm getting to the reason why Elijah is so important. But but it's important to understand in the context of the entire story, why is the story told in the first place? And they're just characters in the story. But they happen to be probably the most important characters. Ahab is the worst of any of the kings. Elijah is the most prominent of any of the prophets. They're both in the northern kingdom of Israel. So Ahab, what he does that is so bad is, well, this is just the start of his reign, but right at the start, instead of just worshiping idols, so remember, uh, the different religions split up the first two commandments differently, right? They say, um, and I, I'm actually, I, I'm a little ashamed to, <laughs> I'm not sure how we number them in the church, in our church, but um, Catholics will number it differently and say that God, thou shalt have no other gods before me, thou shalt not create any graven image, and that's one commandment. But the Jews believe is, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and number two, thou shalt not create any graven image. So they saw those, the Jews see that as two commandments. So what Jeroboam had done was break the commandment to not create a graven image, but he hadn't broken the commandment to put another god before Yahweh. Now, what the, I'm sorry, did I say Ahab? What Jeroboam did. And so what Ahab, the sin that Ahab committed was to take this worship of Yahweh, which was commemorated with graven images, and convert it into the worship of Baal and the worship of Astarte. So these, these, the god of rain and the goddess of fertility that were worshiped by the nations round about, Ahab built temples to them. And he also took a, a woman, an idolatrous woman, as his wife, Jezebel. Now, the, the name Jezebel has come to we, mean in our day a woman of loose morals. And this is why, is because this woman led the king to not only take himself and his household astray, but to take the entire nation astray. We don't know whether personally she was uh, a woman of low chastity, although it seems uh, likely that she was. So we first meet Elijah right after Ahab initiates this worship, this Baal worship. And he was very successful. The people of Israel didn't resist all that much. They immediately followed Ahab. And the very next chapter is where our lesson begins, 1 Kings 17, Elisha, or Elijah the Tishbite. And he's, a, he's sort of a wild man. He's reminiscent of um, Enoch in the book of Moses, the stories of Enoch as a man out of the, a voice crying out of the wilderness, or of John the Baptist, uh, somebody who, who's lived mostly separated from people. And he shows up and he says to Ahab, there will be no rain these years and this, uh, the, the King James language makes it sound a little more uh, archaic than perhaps it is. But in essence, he says, I'm going to seal up the heavens for years because of you, because of your wickedness. And then he disappears. So, the, when, and, and upon Elijah's word, the heavens are, are sealed up and it stops raining. There's a famine in the land, and no one can grow any crops. People start dying. Their crops their crops die, but then their animals begin dying. Uh, creeks and rivers are drying up, and immediately Eli- Elijah goes into hiding. 
because he knows all hands are going to be against him. And in fact, this is true. Everyone hates Elijah because they all believe that he's the author of their terrible fate. So uh, what, are, what are some of the reasons why... Let, uh, we'll take a break in, this, in the narrative right at this point, and we'll discuss what are some of the reasons why people think that Elijah is such an important prophet. Uh, James Farrell, in his book, The Hidden Christ, which I've referred to a few times, he, he talks about it in terms of what he calls the four great separations. And during the lifetime of Elijah, and at this particular point in the history of Israel, he identifies these four separations that exist. Number one, the people from each other, which is symbolized by the two kingdoms that are divided. So the uh, man from his brother, um, man from man, the, se- the separation of man from man, which is two, two kingdoms, the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of Israel. And the separation of man from the temple, which is symbolized by the fact that Jeroboam, when he became king, he was worried that his subjects would go to Jerusalem as they'd been commanded to do in the in the book of Moses, and and he instituted his own temples, and that's why he created the golden calves. So he separated his entire nation from the temple. That's the second separation. The third is the separation of father and mother or people from their posterity. So father and mother from their children. And this is, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure how much credence I give all of these separations, but they're interesting to think about. This particular one, he says it's symbolized by the, the dynasties that exist in the northern kingdom. So in the southern kingdom of Judah, they're all, they're all descendants of David. And there is one dynasty there's a there's an unbroken line of succession from David down through the entire history of the kingdom of, of Judah. But in the kingdom of Israel, there's one dynasty after another, and they all are wiped out. And what will happen is they'll, they'll be so wicked that eventually a prophet will come and say, your whole, your whole house will be taken away from you and none will remain, saith the Lord. And then it happens. And so then someone else is raised up in their place, and lo and behold, that king or or ruler is is just as wicked and within a couple of generations then they're removed from their place and so this dynastic weakness uh brother Farrell presents as a symbolism of the disconnection of father and mother from their posterity but it would have been um it would have had its ultimate fulfillment and the 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 ammonites were people that lived to the north of israel would have had its this separation would have had its ultimate fulfillment in the worship of Moloch, which is the cult of child sacrifice. And he doesn't make that point, but it seems it seems like that would be a better symbolism of the separation of of parents from children. And finally, he says that they were separated from the power of God. So the if you if you think about the history of Israel as a history, and I you know I thought a lot about this idea of of is Elijah important because uh, or or I guess the better question for Latter Day Saints is why was Elijah chosen? Why was Elijah the chosen prophet to restore the sealing power to Joseph Smith? And and why did Malachi? And remember, Christ quoted Malachi in the in the 
Book of Mormon, it was one of very few scriptures that um, that he took the time to actually make sure were written in the Book of Mormon to say, I will send you Elijah the prophet. I will send you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet. And uh, so Malachi, these, these verses by Malachi are actually one of the only verses that appear in all of the standard works because they're quoted in Joseph Smith history. It's quoted in the Doctrine and Covenants and in the Book of Mormon. To say, it's so it's a very important message that Elijah the prophet will appear before the great and terrible day of the Lord. If not, the entire earth will be utterly wasted in Christ's second coming, which is a modern reading of, of the verse. It's not a pre- precise quoting of the scripture. Um, so why is Elijah that important? Why is he the one chosen that has to come before Christ? And the idea in the, in the hidden Christ is that it's because he was the prophet during the time of the greatest separation. And therefore he represents, and he held the priesthood during this time in the keys and the sealing power. And so therefore he should be the one that, that presides over the joining it is, a, it is an interesting idea to think about. I thought about it a little more. First of all, separation, when we, when we think about what happened to mankind in the fall, it was separation, man's separation from God, which is considered spiritual death. So before man was, became fallen man, we had so much more, uh, or let me put it this way, Adam in, the, in, his, in his pre-fallen state in the Garden of Eden he had so much more power and authority from God. He communed with the animals. He had conversations with God face to face and with, with Jesus Christ, with angels. The, there was no death. And when, uh, when, when he and Eve partook of the fruit, then there was the separation from God, but, but also a separation from the his powers over nature, it was a separation from his ability to simply have fruits and flowers come forth spontaneously, but he had to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. So this spiritual and physical death are also, these two deaths are also a form of separation. And they reach their culmination um, that it, it, it is true, or it is true from a certain perspective that these separations, they reach their culmination during the reign of Ahab. And in other words, death is at its most powerful. And alone against all of, all of the forces of Satan is Elijah. And he even says several times, he says, I, that, that Ahab has killed by the sword all the other prophets of Yahweh, and I alone remain. And so he stands alone, and he's not afraid to say the word of God to, to Ahab, this wicked king who's, who's himself not afraid to kill a prophet. One of the, you know, it occurred to me that an interesting, um, so the separate, the fourth separation we talked about, an interesting symbol of that separation between the power of God and the people um, is illustrated by our next story. And that is the story, so when, well, I, actually, it's, it's illustrated by the story of the priests of Baal, and we'll get to that story in just a minute. 
But first, what happens to Elijah? We'll rejoin our narrative now. So Elijah tells Ahab, the heavens will be sealed. Now this, first of all, is a a clear indication that Elijah had been given what we in the LDS church know as the sealing power. And we run into it from, we, we run into it first in the book of uh, Nephi, when, or in the book of Helaman, when he gives the um, sealing power to Nephi, the son of Helaman. And he says, whatever you seal on earth will be sealed in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, because I know that you will command nothing that is not according to my will. So God expresses such confidence in the judgment and in the faith of this prophet that he says, you're, what you say is basically what I say from now on. You, there is no power that I have that is denied to you. This is the sealing power. And, for, and, that, and that was one of his first actions with that power, Nephi's, was to declare that there would be a famine, that there would be no rain. And this is the exact thing that Elijah does. He says, there will be no rain except by my word. And then God commands him to disappear into the wilderness. Now, to understand this part of the story, it's important to remember that the people of ancient times they they didn't have the same they didn't have the same viewpoint we did towards nature. We, living in our comfortable cities, or even in even on farmland, especially in North America, there are very few predators here that we have to worry about. When we go on a journey, we don't worry, is a wild animal going to get me before I get there? Um, and that's just one small aspect of what I'm talking about. But the, the way that we see nature is not the way that an ancient man would have seen nature, the, the, the author of this story, or any person reading the story. The way they would have seen nature was as something that was trying to kill them. That was what nature was. It was constantly killing them, either by famine, by flood, you know, not enough water, too much water, not enough animals, or too many animals. These, these predators would come in and kill them. There were bears, there were wild cats, they called lions and tigers. So at that time, which we can only presume were extinct. So they had an attitude of enmity towards the, to the wild creatures of the world. And in our day, in our time, and perhaps only in the last couple of hundred years, that has been flipped on its head. Now it's not we that fear the animals, but the animals that need to fear us. So there, it used to be humans that were endangered by animals, and now it's animals that are endangered by humans. But in either case, it's not an example of responsible stewardship that, that Adam was given. What it is, is enmity. And what happens to Elijah? Why do I bring all this up? Well, Elijah is sent to this certain brook called Cherith, and he said, go, you know, God tells him, go dwell by the brook Cherith and drink from the brook. So he has water to drink, and how does he survive? Ravens. He's fed by ravens, bringing him food. And Elijah lives by himself in the wilderness again, or we can presume it's again, but perhaps it's for the first time. He lives by himself in the wilderness next to this brook, and 
we hope that he bathed in the brook at from time to time. But um, I imagine when I think of Elijah, I kind of imagine somebody with really wild hair and little branches and leaves stuck in it because he's he's living in the wilderness, hiding out. He can't ever let a person see him because anybody seeing him, the king had put a price on his head. So anybody seeing him would kill him or bring him or report where he was and soldiers would come and kill him. Very, He was very similar to Abinadi. And we can only presume that Abinadi did something kind of like what Elijah did in between the two years when he was first captured and when he finally was uh, killed. He went off and lived in the wilderness because anyone finding him would have killed him. So he's fed by these ravens. And uh, here's another separation. There's another separation between man and nature, or man and the natural world, or man and the other creations of God. And that wasn't the way that God intended it, right? We have the initial example of Adam in the Garden of Eden in harmony with the animals and even giving them names. And naming something in ancient Jewish culture was itself an act of creation. Giving something a a name was part of bringing it into being, which is interesting because even in the even in the ancient Jewish interpretation of the Genesis creation story, we can see Adam as a co-creator. So here we have Elijah overcoming this separation. He's not in a state of enmity with these animals. He is in a state of harmony with them. They see him so important as somebody so important that they'll bring him food and sustain him every day. We don't know how long exactly um, he was in this state in the brook, but eventually the brook dried up. And so Elijah is commanded again to, to leave. And this is a part you'll probably of the story you'll probably be familiar with. There is a, a widow woman he's commanded to go to go unto. And he finds this woman in the place where God tells him to look. And he asks her for some water. She gives him some water. And then he says, can you bring me a little cake? Bake me a cake and bring it to me. And she says, well, funny you should ask, but I was just about to go cook up the last of my meal in the last of my oil and feed it to my son, and then we were going to die because we have nothing else and nobody has nobody else has any food either. It, there's been a famine on for a long time now. I don't know if you know what's going on. And Elijah says, okay, that's great, but first, and this this is a mark of Elijah's great faith because how many of us would have the faith to say to a, a woman who is a widow and who has a child and has just told us she has the last of her food? He says to her, okay, but first, bring me some food. Very interesting. So there's faith shown in this story on both sides. First, Elijah says, first, bring me a cake and then make for yourself and your son and you will find Thus saith the Lord, he promises in the name of God, in the name of Yahweh. Thus saith the Lord, your cruise of oil and your barrel of meal will not fail if you will do this. And she has faith. She obeys the prophet. She believes, She well, she doesn't quite know yet, but she was told, but the Spirit told her he was coming. And so she believes enough to give Elijah the last of her food. And lo and behold, his words are fulfilled. They live there for three years together. Um, we can presume Elijah's living nearby. And uh, she, they eat out of this, this barrel of meal and this cruise of oil. And they, 
I'm sure those cakes got really old, but they lived there for three years. We Part of it next to the brook being fed by ravens and part of it with the widow and her son. And at one point, the son even dies. And she says, what good was it to have a prophet living with me if my son was going to die anyway? Did you come here just to bring evil to me? I know you're the one who commanded the the implied judgment that she's making is, I know you're the one who commanded the famine in the first place. So why did you kill my son? And he says, have faith. And he brings the brings her son back to life. And then she says, now I know. I, it's, it's, I, my words were a little harsher than hers, but she was, she was very upset. And, uh, it's, you can read the passage and decide whether you think she was murmuring or not, but she was definitely upset. And part of it was at Elijah. And, um, and he returns her son to her and she says, now I know you are a prophet and now I know you're a man of God. Well, shortly thereafter, Elijah is, is commanded to return and end the famine. But first, and this is what I referred to earlier, this is one example of the separation of the people from the power of God. First, he's commanded to return to Ahab and propose this duel. So Ahab is out hunting for some tufts of grass they can find to feed their animals so they won't lose everything. And Elijah shows up and says, Ahab, I want to meet you at the top of Mount Carmel, and I want you to bring 450 of the priests of Baal and all of the priests of the groves, and I want you to bring all these idolatrous priests, and we're all going to see who's God. And I want you to bring a bunch of people with you, the normal, the normal worshipers of the, of the kingdom of Israel. So they all repair to this mountain, and I'm sure you've heard the story, one of the most dramatic stories of the, of the entire Old Testament, where he says, okay, here's the deal. How long will you, and he says this to the people who are assembled, how long will you halt between two opinions? A very famous question. Either Baal is God or Yahweh is God. But it can't be both because Yahweh himself has said, Either, if I'm God, there is no, there are no other gods. So Baal might allow for there to be other gods, but Yahweh does not. So it can only be one or the other. Which, which is it? Let's find out. Let's put a bullock on this altar, and this is the priest of Baal. And let's put a bullock on the altar of Yahweh. And who, whichever God, and we'll both pray, and whichever God answers with fire, let him be God. And the people say, this is great. And the priests of Baal, all 450 of them, they, they pray all day. They pray from the morning until noon. And then Elijah, this is uh, one of the few scriptural examples of trash talk. Elijah says, well, where, where is Baal? Where, where is he? Is he hiding? Maybe he's talking to someone. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's out. He's away somewhere. Maybe you just have to yell louder. And so they, they cut themselves and, they, and they're trying to ignite this fire with their blood. And I'm sure as, as soon as Elijah proposed this bet, they, they all gulped inside because they had to know they had never really seen any true power from, from Baal. And uh, the truth is we don't even see this kind of power from God this often where he, he shows his hand this explicitly. And we'll talk a little bit about why that might be. But in any case, on this day, uh, Elijah waits until evening time and about the time of the evening sacrifice, where if they were, if they had been at the temple, this is when they would be sacrificing. Well, here they are at a mountaintop 
and he rebuilds the altar. And uh, he builds it with 12 stones symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel as, it, as the altars have, have been built since the time of Jacob. And then he has them put some wood under there, but he, but he also uh, builds a trench around the altar and pours th- four barrels of water on top of this three different times. So he totally soaks the altar, the bullock, and the wood in water. And then he prays and he asks God to send down fire. And what happens, but not only is the sacrifice consumed, but the wood is consumed, the stones, the very stones of the altar are consumed and the water licks up. It says it licks up the water in the trench. So uh, uh, the so God answers Elijah's prayer in this spectacular and undeniable way. And then all of the people are immediately, of course, on the side of Elijah. And he says, let's not let any of these priests of Baal escape. And the people arise and put them all to death for the, for the sin of, we can presume, for other sins as well, but at the very least for the sin of idolatry. That's the story of Elijah and the priests of Baal. And it's... Um, and it's certainly an example of the separation of all these people from the power of God because they, they were the, the very question that Elijah began the entire encounter with. How long halt ye between two opinions? And that's a question we could ask ourselves. Uh, in fact, that's, an, that's a question I wouldn't mind getting some email about, which is, what are some of the opinions you've, been, you've halted between? Uh, and it might have been, at a similar time, right before you see the influence of God in your life, you might have thought to yourself, well, it was God really around. Uh, who do whom do I believe? Do I, do I believe that there is no God? Usually today, it wouldn't be that you believe in some pagan God, but you would believe in some other power or some other idea. Um, and it might be atheism, or it might simply be that God doesn't, he loves everyone else but you. In, in, in any case, you've, you've recreated some God that isn't actually God. It doesn't, he doesn't have, this God that you've created doesn't have a real resemblance to Jesus Christ and God the Father that doesn't have the, the mercy, the love, the forgiveness, the, the attributes of God as we know him. And then you've chosen, you've halted between two opinions. So are, are, there, um, are, are there some examples of this idea how long will you halt between two opinions that any of you can think of send them in um that's the end of this encounter and then elijah hurries and races back to meet ahab who's taken his chariots home and he says now you see that god is uh the most powerful but meanwhile Jezebel has heard what happened to all her priests of Baal, and she's very upset, and she swears, she sends to Elijah this threat. She says, so, uh, let God do the same to me if, if by this time tomorrow you're not, uh, I, don't, I don't kill you like one of them. So Elijah takes the hint and gets out of town. So here's the second time Elijah flees into the wilderness, and At this point, 
we should talk about another um, another separation. So twice now, the, the prophet of Israel, the lone remaining prophet, has um, run into the wilderness. So it's a separation of the people, not only from their temple, but from the prophet, from the priesthood, from the keys of the priesthood. And so... So in addition to the four separations we discussed earlier, we have now the, the, the separations of death, the separation from the prophet, the separation from, uh, from nature or the other creations of God. And we can see in the, in the example of the priests of Baal a separation of earthly power from God's power. So the king is, is definitely not on the side of God, not only to uh, promote an idolatrous system of worship, but to be just wicked, Basically, not try to do what's just. And later in uh, Ahab's life, we have the example where he wanted a certain pe- piece of land. And if you read on farther than, than chapter 19, you'll, you'll read the story of Naboth. And Ahab says to him, let me buy your land. And Naboth says, no, it's my, it's my um, family land. It's my ancestral homeland. I can't, I can't sell it. And Ahab is so angry and... Jezebel says, oh, I'll handle this. Um, and she sends letters to elders in the town and has them bear false witness against Naboth, and he's taken out and executed. And then Ahab goes and takes ownership of this vineyard because he wanted it, because it was next to his own. And this is a perfect example of what, and you remember from, the, from chapter 9 of the book of Judges, where one of the sons of Gideon, when he, um, when one of his brothers kills all, all of the other, of the brothers, there's eighty of them, and he kills them all and makes himself king. And he, and the the one remaining son who escaped stands on the wall, almost like Samuel the Lamanite, and says, "This is this is the principle upon which kings are going to be chosen among you." There's all the trees, and the the trees wanted to make a king, and so they asked first the olive tree and they ask the vine or they they ask all these beautiful trees what is the uh, will you be king over us and each time the tree says you know they ask the fig tree and the olive tree and the vine and they each say no i'm i'm busy raising figs or raising grapes or and finally the trees have to elect the bramble because they need they want to have a king for some stupid reason and the bramble says okay i'll reign over you but if you but if not let fire go out from the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. In other words, the worst plant is going to rule, and if and if people rebel, then that plant is going to burn it, burn it all down, including the cedars of Lebanon, the most beautiful tall trees, the most useful in construction. And here we have an example of a bramble. Ahab is saying, give me your land, but if not, I'm going to kill you and take it anyway, and I'm going to cause other people to, to bear false witness in order to get it. So this, he's the worst form of king, he's the worst form of human being, and he's the worst disciple of Yahweh. In all ways, he's a failure. And that's what the story of Kings, the book of Kings, is. It is the story of how Israel failed in its, in its quest to produce this messianic king, to prove itself worthy of the promises of Abraham. It failed. And the only thing that God could do... that the the book of kings is almost an argument that god had no choice but to let israel be carried away into exile 
and we'll discuss when we discuss the book of Ezra, when we discuss the book of Jonah, we'll discuss whether God was right in thinking that. But the, the argument that the book of Kings is making is, yes, God was right. He had no choice. He truly had no choice because no matter what he tried, Israel was so wicked that they could not be saved. There was no choice but to allow them to be destroyed as a nation. And this is uh, exhibit A, is, is the conduct of Ahab not only towards Elijah, but towards the people that he was sent to rule over. So Elijah flees from the anger of Jezebel, and he flees to what's called Mount Horeb. Now, if you remember, that's another name. That's the, in fact, that's the name given to Mount si- what we call Mount Sinai. This is where Moses ended up when he fled from Pharaoh. And there are parallels between Elijah and Moses But um, I want to draw your attention at this point to something because there are more parallels between Elijah and something else. First of all, Elijah, I mentioned the separation between, uh, that that Elijah was fed by ravens. If you read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 13, Christ, when he was baptized and then he began his ministry, he started with 40 days of fasting and he went out into the wilderness And he was with, and it says in this verse, he was with the wild animals and attended by angels. And at this point, Elijah runs into the wilderness. He's running towards Mount Horeb, but but he he actually doesn't really plan on going to Mount Horeb at this point. He 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 sits down under a tree and he says, "God, let me die." And there are other prophets who have made this same the same plea, and um. I'll discuss them in a future lesson, but uh, I'll discuss it actually when we discuss Jonah. But if you want to um, email in your examples of of times in the scriptures when the prophet prays to God, let me die, or take my soul now, or please kill me, um, then please do so, and and I'll read them next time. And if not, you'll have to wait until we discuss Jonah. And spoiler alert, Jonah was one of them. But... Um, instead of dying, Elijah wakes up from his prayer, from his vision, and there's an angel there who says, arise and eat. And then it happens again. And Jonah is sustained for 40 days in the wilderness on his way to Mount Horeb. And there he, he's in a cave and he has a prayer with God. And he says, God, why have you, why have you brought me here? Um, I'm the only prophet left. There's no one in Israel. There's no one even believes in God anymore. And this is when, um, this is where we get the title of our lesson. God says, come out, come out of the cave. And so Elijah comes out and then God passes by in this whirlwind, this violent wind. And it says, it's interesting because it says, first it says that Yahweh passed by the Lord, as it says, the Lord in small caps, you know, that's the divine name, Yahweh. It says Yahweh passed by and and then there was a mighty wind, but God was not in the wind. And then there was an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. And and the reason I say it's interesting is because first it says that God passed by, and then there was a wind right there. So the wind was obviously caused by God, but God wasn't in it. And the earthquake was caused by God, but God wasn't in it. And then there was a fire, but God was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. Now let's talk a little bit about that phrase. 
if you were raised in the church, you've heard it so much. You've heard it since you were a small child to the point where I think this phrase is almost meaningless. We don't even think about what each of these words means anymore. We just say the, we say the phrase, still small voice, and we think of whatever we think of. For me, it's, it's literally a meaningless phrase. It, it doesn't carry any meaning to my mind other than to, um, to, to make me come up with some other way of describing the spirit. So still, what, word, what Hebrew word is translated into English as still? The other uh, most illustrative use of this word is in, is in Psalm 107, verse 29, when it's talking about uh, how people who make their living by voyaging across the sea, and it's, and it's describing the mercies of God. And, and when these people find themselves in the midst of a storm, they can pray to God, and he will quiet the storm, he will calm the storm. And obviously, we're reminded of what Jesus did in the uh, in in being on the ship when the disciples come to him and say, "Master, carest thou not that we perish?" And he says, "Peace, be still." This is the kind of still the this word is talking about, and and, and actually, it's not an adjective in Hebrew; it's a noun. It means a whisper. So when, when the scripture says a still, small voice, what it means is a small whisper. And then the word for small. Now, if we let's, let's think about rocks, for example. You can have a large rock and a small rock. You could have a very small rock. And the word for, that's translated here as small actually means fine or thin or finely ground. So it's not a small rock. If you were to describe a rock with this word, it would be powder. And so that, I mean, there are other words in Hebrew that mean small, but this particular word means finely ground. So you have a whisper that's finely ground. In other words, it's not even a small, it's not, you're not going to hear rocks tumbling downhill in the earthquake. You're not even going to hear little rocks shuffling downhill in a footstep. It's finely ground powder. It's the whisper of the voice of God. Why, why do I belabor this point? I, one reason was I want this phrase to have meaning again. It's used so often to teach children about the Holy Ghost. And I don't know if other people share this the same viewpoint or the same problem that I have with it, which is that it's just used so much that it, when you're a kid, you don't know what still and small means. And because we don't use these words the way they were used at the time the King James translation was made, we don't necessarily even know what it means as adults. A still, small voice is not the way, we don't describe anything as being still and small, other than the still, small voice. And what it means is this finely, fine, this thin whisper. Why is it such a whisper? Why is the voice of God come that way? Two reasons. Number one, that I can come up with. Number one, God, the utmost priority of God, the number one priority of God is preserving our agency. This entire existence has come into being as a, as a means for God to bring about our agency. 
And so this still small voice exists on the cusp when we're between two choices and we really could go either way. Sometimes we have terrible influences in our lives. And, and uh, I'm, I'm going to bring up what I talked about last week or last time, which was the, the idea that when we break the patterns of generations, we're, we're making things easier in the afterlives and in the, in the eternities for our ancestors or for those who've gone before. And again, I don't, I don't advance that as doctrine, but just an interesting idea to think about. But when we do that, we are, we are, or let me put it another way, um, from one viewpoint, what has gone before, the terrible things that have happened to us, the, the circumstances in which we find ourselves, they determine our fate. And in another sense, we are total masters of our own fate. Well, neither one is a completely true. We can't escape the, the things that have formed our lives, and we also don't have to let them define us. There are so many examples of people who have transcended their circumstances. And Christ is one of them. Christ, was, Christ had to flee. His family had to flee for their lives. And somewhere between two and three dozen small children were killed by the government in order to get to Christ. That was chapter one in Christ's young life. And so uh, he was familiar with suffering very early on, as were his parents. And I'm sure you know someone, I think we all probably know someone who's, who's come through great personal tragedy or great difficulty or great suffering and made wonderful, uh, made a wonderful life or an admirable life out of it. And so at some point we reach, we reach a place where these, these terrible circumstances or the suffering that exists or the difficulties that exist are balanced. They're totally in balance with the, the fact that God wants us to succeed and wants us to do well and wants us to make good choices. And, we, and it's up to us in that moment. And we really can go either way. And Christ and God will create as many of these opportunities for us as we need. And then in that moment, we have the power to choose. And that's the moment where we hear the still small voice. That's why it's such a whisper is because we're absolutely balanced on the point of choosing. And we, unless we're in that, unless those two forces are in balance, then there is no choice. One of them overpowers the other. And so the whole point of the plan of salvation is to create these moments of balance where we can, if we listen, we can hear this whisper that comes to us and says, choose God if you want to. If what you want are the rewards of God, then make the choices that leads to those rewards in this moment. The second reason, and this is somewhat profound, is that Elijah, so we can we can see, definitely we can see, because he's going to Mount Horeb, he has been forced out by a king who wants to kill him. We can see the similarities between Elijah and Moses. But what you have to strain a little bit to see is the similarities between Elijah and the nation of Israel itself. And as we expressed either last time, I think it was last time or the time before, the struggles and the challenges and the punishments that come upon the nation of Israel are meant very much to be a reflection of our own spiritual journey, our, our eternal progression. And Christ himself went through 
or let me let me say it this way the the life of Christ was typified by the history of the nation of Israel and the history as told to the prophets not as understood by the people in living in old testament times only up to that point but a history that includes the coming of Christ and includes the latter days and includes the millennium if you if you see the history of the nation of Israel if you see the history of the people of Israel from that perspective, then you also see your own pre-mortal existence, mortal life, and eternal progression echoed there. But Elijah's earthly life alone was a symbol of this progression. And without going over too much of the story that we've already gone over, um, he spends, so this, this number 40 is very symbolic of the time of suffering. So Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness, and Elijah spends 40 days traveling to Mount Sinai, where he undergoes an earthquake, a fire, a a mighty wind, and then has the chance to choose, to make a choice to serve God or not. And these are all things that the people of Israel underwent. And it's not part of today's lesson, but... um, Next time we'll talk about the Elisha, the successor to Elijah, taking up the mantle of Elijah. And when they, when, um, and similar to Moses, Elijah was taken up into heaven without tasting death. But Elijah went across the River Jordan, and uh, and he, well, I shouldn't say the River Jordan. He parted the waters to walk across into the wilderness, and he and he left the promised land. So they, they go, they're going eastward. He, he and Elijah, this is the final chapter of Elijah. Uh, he and Elisha, this is the final chapter of Elijah's life. So um, I won't point out all the similarities. I'll leave that as an exercise for you. But if you choose to read these, uh, these chapters and read a little bit beyond, you'll see there are, there are a ton of similarities between the history of Israel and the life of Elijah. Elijah is the embodiment, and, and, it's, and it's very intentional on the part of the author of the book of Kings. Elijah is the embodiment of the nation of Israel. So I don't know whether it's because he lived in a time of all these separations, or whether it's because he was he represented the either the head of a dispensation that had the sealing power, or whether he was the last of the prophets to have the sealing power. But Elijah felt like he was the, the last faithful worshiper of Yahweh. And God sets him straight on that. While he's in Mount Horeb, God says, No, I have, I have 7,000 people in Israel that have never bent the knee to Baal. And from this we can see, this is, that's only really, today that would be a modern equivalent of two or three stakes of Zion. The, the people that would fill up two or three stakes, that, no more than that. And for that number of people, God is willing to endure such wickedness as is going on in Israel without destroying them. And he preserves them after this still several generations until there are seriously almost no faithful worshipers left. He has no one left he can count on. And there are only two or three prophets. And when they die, then, then the whole nation's done. And the point is, God isn't destroying people because he's angry. He's, when, he, when God calls it 
my wrath will come upon you. What he means is, I just can't let this go on forever. I, my mercy will continue with you as long as there is someone that understands and hears my voice. But otherwise, it, what's best for you is also what's best for me, which is not to let this continue. And, it's, and it appears to us, and it's, part of it is because of the way it's translated, but it, part of it is the way that culturally they rendered such statements from God, which is a statement of wrath rather than of judgment. And we all have a desire for justice. We wouldn't, we wouldn't really want to worship God unless God were just. When somebody treats us with injustice, we cry to God for justice. So God isn't God if he's not a God of justice. And yet, um, we also want that justice to apply to other people and not ourselves. So that's the, that's the paradox of being a worshiper of God is we, we love the justice of God. We, we certainly don't, wouldn't want to substitute the justice of God for our own justice, for our own judgment. We believe there has to be some perfect judgment somewhere. We just want it to make an exception where we're concerned. And that, that is shown over and over again. Those, those two competing needs of people in their God and in their... We, we have these needs about the way things should work. We have these underlying assumptions about what, what God should be like. And it turns out that... Um, in a much more perfect way than we can imagine, God is actually just and merciful. So I don't know whether it's because the that Elijah presides over this period where the separations are so great, or whether he is the prophet with such faith that he has the sealing power and he holds the entire nation in his hands and he embodies not only the the history of Israel, but the priesthood of Israel. And so uh, let's talk about, finally, the spirit of Elijah. And then, uh, and then I'll give you one question that you can think about as we prepare for next week's lesson. But the, the spirit of Elijah is this idea, and here's, the, and here's the verse that was quoted to Joseph Smith when and this is, this is very important, to quoted to Joseph Smith when Moroni appeared to him. And the original verse in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 6, is, And I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I should come and smite the earth with a curse. And when Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith, he quotes scriptures, and then he gives more... Uh, he gives more information each time he comes. And on one of his visits, he says, um, there were three visits throughout the night. And one of his visits, he quotes these verses, but instead of reading it that way, instead of saying, I'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children of the fathers, he says, I will plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers. And I will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. Were it not so, the earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. And his meaning Elijah. But the verse before that is, I will send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Even today in Jewish homes, you will see an empty seat at the table. And they set a place for Elijah to come eat with them. They don't know. Their tradition is to make room for Elijah, whatever that means. And they don't know when he's coming. But should he come, 
Should today be the great and terrible day of the Lord, we will have room for him. I think it's a beautiful gesture. We know one of the one of the concrete fulfillments of this verse was when Elijah appeared to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in the Temple of Kirtland and restored the sealing power. But uh, the what was the promise that Moroni made? He said, I will plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers. And what are those promises? Well, what what did Elijah exactly restore? He restored the sealing power. And when we think of the sealing power, we think of sealers in the temple who, who are authorized to perform the sealing ordinance, which is sealing uh, a husband and wife or parents and children together for time and all eternity. But in a broader sense, and that is definitely what the sealing power is, but in a broader sense, it is the power that was given to Nephi, meaning the power to, and in the ancient world, a seal was when you when you um, closed an envelope and before the days of paper, when you tied a certain knot on something and you put either wax on it or you, um, and, and the way that they would have translated it into King James time was a, was a seal. And that, and that was definitely the language that, uh, in which Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon was in, a, in, the, in very much the, the parlance of the King James version of the Bible. Um, and so in the time of the King James translation was this wax seal that, that would identify the person who had this piece of metal that would create an impression in the wax. But it was anything that created a permanent seal on something that would be shut up forever. And, and it was the seal of approval. It was the, the fact that it was like the final stamp that, yes, this will be done. So that's what the sealing power is. It is the word of God. It is the power to say the words of God and to name the will of God, to bring it into being by giving it a name. These people shall be forever together. This family will be sealed. This, there shall be no rain. Well, Elijah restored that power for the temple ordinances, and in so doing, he made it possible for parents to be sealed to their children. Why? Why are we sealed to our parents? And uh, I, I think if you, if you ask people to think about this long enough, they would say, well, of course, you want to be sealed to your family, you want to live together forever. There's nothing in the gospel that would lead you to believe that you couldn't live with somebody that you weren't sealed to, if you both lived such a life that you could qualify for heaven, why would it matter if you had some ordinance that joined you or whether you just chose to associate there? What does the sealing ordinance actually provide you with that you couldn't have otherwise? And it's a very worthwhile question because it, it does provide you with something. It's not a meaningless ordinance, but it's not what most people think. You don't have to live with your parents in the same house. You're going to have your own family when you're in heaven. What is it that the sealing ordinance gives you? And the answer is in this in the change that Moroni made to this verse. Instead of saying, I'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, he said, I will plant in the hearts of the children the promises. And I told you we'd get back to that word. The promises made to their fathers. The promise made to their fathers was precisely what the Israelites wanted to create in their nation, which was a fulfillment 
of the covenant of Abraham. The covenant to Abraham was, you shall have this promised land, you shall have posterity, as great as the sands and the sea or the stars and the sky, you will have this posterity, and through your posterity, all the people of the earth will be blessed. Those were the, that's the Abrahamic covenant. And it was repeated to Isaac. It was repeated to Jacob. And then it stopped. As far as I know, God didn't repeat that promise. He has not made, I know, I know for a fact, he has not made such a covenant with me. I don't have, there is, no, there is no covenant of Mark that exists just for me. There was for Abraham, but it hasn't been extended personally to me. What happened was God said, he showed that, that as long as you were part of the covenant lineage, you, were, you had access to those blessings. And so the sealing ordinance isn't a way for us to be able to associate with our family members in heaven. The sealing ordinance is a way for us to lay claim on the covenant of Abraham. What is called in section 132, the new and everlasting covenant. It's new because it was renewed in our dispensation by the visit of Elijah. This new and everlasting covenant that allows us to lay claim on this greatest of blessings, which is posterity as great as the stars in the heavens. The the eternal inheritance of a promised land, and that has both an earthly and an eternal significance, because this earth, the land that create that makes up the, the earth that we that we live on, will one day be celestialized. So it's a it's a promise of land, yes, but even more so it's a promise of an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. And one that has eternal increase. This is a covenant that was made to Abraham but not to us. How, and so therefore, when Elijah, this is the spirit of Elijah, that we hunger again, as the ancient Israelites did, we hunger for the, for the blessings of the covenant of Abraham. And if you will want to remember what that hunger feels like, just go to the book of Abraham in the Pearl of Great Price and read the first couple of verses there. And he says, and, and, and feeling this desire to be a prince of peace, to be a father over many nations, to have a greater knowledge, to have greater power in the priesthood. He has all these wonderful desires that seem so ambitious. And then he receives this amazing promise. And this promise is extended to us conditionally upon our creating a great web, a great interconnected web of people and of sealing and of righteousness out of all the people of the earth. That is why... There is such an urgency in the Latter-day Church to build temples and to get people doing genealogy is because it's not enough for us to save our own ancestors. We have to save everyone because you never know who might come along who needs access to the blessings of Abraham, and the only way they can get it is by the sealing ordinance of children to parents. So this is the spirit of Elijah. This is why Elijah is so important, is because he is, he represents the nation of Israel. And he is the link, and his power that he restored is the link that connects us, that gives us access to this most wonderful of all promises, the covenant of Abraham, which is the new and everlasting covenant of the gospel. So, as Elijah said, what reason is there for us to halt between two opinions? There 
is uh, an entire nation of of priests of Baal, 450 of them, who can chant and cut themselves and scream and yell all day long and will never succeed in having the slightest spark come out of heaven. Or there is one prophet who at his word can have fire come out of heaven by the will of God and consume the sacrifice, the wood, the altar, and the water. We can worship the God of Israel, or we can worship Baal, or we can halt, as we so often do, between two opinions. God will create those moments of balance for us, where we are between those two opinions, and we have the choice, and it's up to us. And in that moment of silence, in that moment of perfect balance, he will keep bringing us back there, is this powdery, tiny whisper, which is his voice. May we listen for it and hear it and follow it as often as possible and as quickly as possible. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.